Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 20. My next guest is Cora Moore. Cora is an author, a survivor of ACEs, adverse childhood experience, sober housing resource provider, substance use disorder counselor, and a human services advocate who's been in recovery for 17 years. Cora also worked in the field of addiction since 2013. She's been involved in smart recovery, refuge recovery, and various 12-step programs, and found cognitive behavioral therapy a crucial part of her recovery. Cora lives in Northern California with her family, where she endeavors to help other people share their stories of survival and resilience. Let's listen in. Hi, Cora. Thank you for coming on my podcast. So good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Share with us a little bit what life was like before recovery. Oh, well, let's see. Before recovery, um, it was really a nightmare. I mean, I really rode it all the way until the wheels came off. And... um, I mean, it was, it was, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do next or where I would be doing it or who I would be doing it with. And of course it didn't start out that way. It started out, you know, with weed, started out with marijuana and I thought, oh, this is great. I can, I can manage. And I managed and I managed and then I'd throw in something else and I'd manage and I'd manage and I'd throw in something else until, um, you know, I had a really serious poly substance use disorder that um, I eventually got arrested over. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. How so? Well, I was, uh, my family um, were drug dealers and uh, addicts. And so I was in this holding cell and my family had always said, don't, don't say anything. If you ever get arrested, you don't say anything. And so here I am in this uh, holding cell coming off of many heavy hard drugs and I wouldn't tell them my name. You know, it's like, oh, don't say anything, don't say anything. And I'm like picturing, you know, my mom, you don't say anything, you don't say anything. And so I'm having really serious withdrawal and the withdrawal is getting worse and worse and I'm, I don't know what's happening. And uh, after some amount of time, Somebody came into the holding cell and he said, you know, I'm, I'm head of the narcotics here and we can't book you because you won't tell us your name. And I said, my name. And I said, uh, I'm a drug addict and I need help. And he said, wow, that's, uh, that's a good start. No addict ever gets help without asking for it. And I think there was the, that was the kind of moment of reckoning where I finally admitted to myself what was obvious to other people, I'm sure. And I think my journey started right then and there. So before we get into that part, say a little more about this polysubstance use and your whole family system. Was everyone similar, your parents, and you had siblings, is that right? Yes. I had an older brother um, that was raised by my grandparents who I would see sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then two younger brothers and those brothers uh, had a different father than I did. And uh, 
we moved before my one brother was born, my middle brother was born. And shortly after he was born, we went to live in Alaska. And that was under the guise of, uh, of my stepfather working on the pipeline, which I think was a euphemism for go uh, be a pot grower, you know, because that's what ended up happening. You know, we kind of eventually ended up out in the middle of nowhere in this sort of enclave of, um, you know, it's a pot farm. And so they, you know, they're and he was an alcoholic, you know, whenever cocaine would come through town, that was a big, it was just a big dysfunctional drug fueled um, situation. And so, you know, eventually um, I learned how to, you know, get high. I was just sitting, sitting with my friends, my friends and, you know, my friend's dad. And it was like, you know, got past the joint and it was like, oh, this is it. This is, this is why people do this. And I never wanted to look back. And I thought I'll never be like them. You know, I'll them being. Manage. What would you say? So them being. That, oh my, well, like the, the addicts that I was raised by. So then I wouldn't be like them. I would be able to handle it. I would still uh-huh. have my, my moral compass. You know, I wouldn't ever do the things that I saw happen. And, you know, eventually, and that worked. It worked for a long time. You know, I was able to do that and I was a good person. You know, I would do volunteer work and human services and all kinds of great stuff. But eventually the the burden of substances kept growing and growing and growing and growing until eventually I was kind of backed in a corner where I did compromise my values, you know, lying to people. And uh, I couldn't admit it to myself, you know. I mean, it, it, there was a there was a point where I did admit it to myself, but I was so far in that I couldn't admit it to anyone else and I couldn't kind of stop the train wreck. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned the wheels falling off, what did that actually look like for you? That looked like uh, leaving leaving the place where I was living in Northern California. And I basically crossed the country in a blackout. I don't think I was, dry, I don't think I was drinking, but the load of different substances that I was doing was so severe, you know, it's like, okay, well, we're going to go. I was with uh, my boyfriend at the time and uh, who was really my drug dealer. And, you know, it's like, we're going to go, we're going to go get clean in New York. And so I remember saying that on the West coast and then kind of coming to in Tennessee at a music festival. And um, I remember thinking, thinking I was going to die. Uh, because it was really hot and I was really dehydrated and malnourished and you know I could just tell like my electrolytes were off and I you know I could barely I could barely walk and um, it was right after that that um, you know the law caught up and I had always kind of said my uh, grandmother was very religious and she taught me about her religion. And so I always kind of had this deal with God, so to speak, you know, it's like, all right, like, I'm pretty sure I, you know, I'm trying to be a good person here. I don't want to be high all the time. I'm high all the time. I think, I think this might be your will for me, dear God, (laughs) to be high all the time, because it seems I was pulling it off for so long, but I kind of always had this caveat to that, which was, you know, if you want me to stop doing this, you know, put the law on me and then I'll know that's my signal. And so by the time that happened, because I was good at being a functional addict, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
So to me, the wheels falling off was getting arrested. We were actually supposedly on our way to get married. So wedding invitations had gone out. So here I am, like supposedly this responsible, productive, nice, <laughs> you know, pretending to be this, you know, something that I'm not, which is like, I'm this raging addict and I'm trying to not be a raging addict and pretend like I've got it together. And so to have the wedding invitations sent out and be in jail for an entire month for the wedding was, you know, it was humiliating and humbling and uh, apparently just what I needed to make a 180 degree turn and get into recovery. So when you're in jail, what are you thinking in there at that point? Um, it was very, it was very survival mode. Um, I don't know that I was thinking anything for probably at least the first week because I had been on, you know, amphetamine and morphine and benzos and just, I mean, I was on a lot of things Mm -hmm. when that happened and they didn't do any sort of, um, medication and I had detoxing uh, help or anything. You just, so yeah, I'm detoxing and you know, can't sleep, but I don't have the energy to do anything, but sleeping sometimes. And, you know, and have this, I had in the drama of getting arrested, I had crawled through a poison ivy. So I'm just having all this horrible physical stuff going on, which I'm like deathly allergic to uh, poison oak and poison ivy. So I've got this, you know, my face is swelling, my legs are swelling and, you know, and it's just like this, Uh, one horse town in Tennessee, you know, where the, the doctor that all the people would see in the jail was also the coroner was also probably the lawyer, you know, it was just really backwards kind of place. And, um, so yeah, it was just wild. And so when you left jail, what happened then? So I was there for 30 days. Um, because my, my older brother came and visited me and I thought, oh, yeah, he's going to take me to rehab. This is so great. I'm going to get my life together. And he looked at me and he said, um, no, we think you're going to die. And so we're going to leave you right here. And I was just floored. I was right just here floored. in jail? Yeah, I was just floored. I was like, how can you say that? I want to go to rehab. I'm ready to change my life. And so what ended up happening was my uh, boyfriend, fiance, um, you know, eventually, I think it was like day 28. And I remembered that deal that I had with God, you know, it was like, oh, because all I could think about the whole time I was in there, not all I could think about for the most part was like, I'm just gonna one more time, it'll just be champagne, it's gonna be fine, I can just I can have, you know, tie one off one more time, and it's gonna be okay. And then I think it was like on day 28, you know, my thinking started to come back a little bit. And I was like, Oh, wait, I have this deal with, you know, the universe that I'm not going to do that anymore. And so I just kind of, you know, surrendered to that idea of that I'm not going to do that anymore and I really want to get out. And so the next thing I knew, like a couple days later, I was like, get your things, get on the gate. And I had seen that happen for other people. So I knew what that meant because, you know, this, this whole thing about being in jail, it was like, I just didn't have any idea. All I had seen was movies, you know? Right. So I was like, I'm learning how to, for one thing that I don't need to like fight everybody to like get my meal tray or whatever. It's just, I was just so clueless. Um, there's this whole culture in there. 
which I got a hold of pretty quickly. And you'd have to, I think, got, right? Yeah, I got into some kind of almost got into some altercations and the really scary person in there to me that was like the really hardened criminal in there. She ended up coming to me and saying, you know, if you ever need anything, I got your back. And I was like, oh no. This is this is what like being the first person in my family to go to college, this is what I'm gonna amount to, like having figured out cell block B. That's it. This is my like this is not who I was meant to be. So I got out and uh, it turns out I didn't know who bailed me out because I just, hmm. you know, I just kind of had it was it's very hard to think after that many years of substance use, you know. Sure. 28 30 days is not very much time so it turned out that you know my fiance had sprung me he, he got out his family came and got him out and overnight they gave him a chance to raise the money to get me out he got me out and his mom was like all right you're coming with us here's what you're coming to, to mama duke's rehab here's what you're gonna do you know you're gonna wow. do chores you're gonna get a job you're gonna go to a meeting every day and I thought, man, that sounds like a really good deal. <laughs> Let's go, you know? Uh-huh. And so you did. And so I did, yes. I was dug in like a donkey <laughs> trying to wow. go into the first meeting. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to the meeting. And I was like, I can't go in there without, you don't understand. Like, I at least need some psych meds to go in there, like Valium or something. Like, I can't walk into a room full of people. Are you out of your mind? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, but I did. Um, make good on my end of the deal and then you know and I just tried to do the things that were uh, suggested as a way of recovering uh, mostly to make other people happy I really believed I really deeply believed that I was going to die that way and that no matter how hard I tried to recover that I would just despite myself because it was so second nature to me to use drugs and alcohol that I thought well I'm going to be one of those people who overdoses and dies because I'm just not going to, something's going to happen. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get upset about something and I'll just do it without thinking about it. And it turned out that the times that that happened, I was in a very protected environment where I could, you know, have those triggers and successfully survive them. And, you know, once I got started, it was like, wow, this is the thing I've been looking for all these years in the drugs freedom, getting to be okay, having uh, work and simplicity, and to be able to be honest, you know, not have anything to hide. So once I realized the sort of gift that recovery is, I couldn't get enough. And I thought, I gotta, I gotta do more of this and kept going. That's incredible. Based on your history, where everyone around you growing up was using, right? Mm -hmm. And coming to a, a peak which was like shit I'm gonna die and I want to stop was, mm-hmm. were people around you in recovery at any time in your life before this point I had no idea what recovery was I know that my really good friend from work was like you got to go to AA I'll go with you like you're in bad shape and I so I knew, you know, I'd heard about AA and I know that my stepdad had gone to AA and it seemed like he was okay, but I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the biggest obstacle was for you 
while in early recovery? The biggest obstacle for me in early recovery. Oh, that's a great question. I don't even know how to answer that question. I think, I think what would have been helpful to me in early recovery was knowing about trauma-informed treatment because the way that I got into recovery was uh, through a 12-step program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the only thing anybody ever mentioned about trauma and addiction was one guy I met at a meeting and he said, oh, I, I work with women in, in trauma and recovery. And I thought, oh, that's a thing? I need to be a part of that thing. And he said, well, here's the women that you stick with. <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay. But that kind of got me thinking, you know, and it wasn't until I had a few years of recovery. In my first year, at my first year, I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to work with people in recovery. This is so great. When I did my little personality test in high school, it said you should be a, a counselor. And I thought, you know, I want to be a drug and alcohol counselor. And um, it wasn't until I moved. So that was the New York. I went to New York where I was in recovery. And then I decided at four four years clean to come back to California. I thought, okay, I've you know, got myself together. And then I wanted to study that. And it wasn't until I got into those studies that I really learned about how adverse childhood experiences impact addiction. And that was a real revelation to me. And it was a, it was a real, um, it was a real time for me to experience a greater, greater level of self-compassion around my addictions because when I took the ACEs score, it was like 9-10, depending on how you want to interpret that last question. You know, I was like, well, I could be a 9 or I could be a 10, which is, I mean, and they, you know, at, at level 4, the questionnaire has 10 questions. Mm -hmm. So 4 or above puts you at, you know, risk for negative outcomes, including addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was a revelation. And... So when you're talking about ACEs, that, again, is adverse childhood experiences, which is really any kind of traumatic events between 0 and 17, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things about ACEs is how it affects adulthood. Because now, as, a, as an adult who experienced the, you know, extensive trauma in, in many, many ways, this became a revelation to you because... What was it for you to know that this is the thing? Well, you know, people had said to me, many people had said to me, yes, you had a rough childhood, you need to get over it. And I was like, listen, I, there's nothing I'd like to do more than get over it. Right. I don't know how to get over it. And I just felt like it was, it felt like every time somebody would say something like that to me, that it was like, I was in a wheelchair and I was paralyzed and they were telling me, just get up and walk, just get over it. And it was like, I was mentally and psychologically crippled from, from these things that felt so big to me, that felt so crippling to me. And I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. um, because in that, in that enclave in Alaska, Right. There was this there were a number of people who were predatory and the, the sort of apex predator was um, a man who, you know, finally, when it was all said and done, went to prison for many years uh, for sex crimes against children. And I didn't I knew that was going on 
And actually, when we finally kind of escaped from that situation, I got a call from law enforcement and was basically the first. There was a girl who had been assaulted. She went to the hospital. She gave the, the authorities my name. And I was the first person who would talk, right? Because there was this total culture of we don't say anything. We don't say anything. We don't say anything. And I was, no, no, I, like, absolutely, I will talk. And um, the revelation that came out of that was, you know, I was always worried about my safety. Mm -hmm. I was always worried about my safety. It was just terrifying at home. It was terrifying to be in the neighborhood. And what I didn't realize was that the boys were being more victimized than the girls. So that, that revelation was the thing that just felt more big and more crippling than anything else to me. And I just wanted to not bypass that part of the story because sure. to me that was, it was so important. And to feel like I had missed this whole thing where people that I loved and was growing up with and my younger brothers in particular were in much greater danger than I ever realized. And so that, that just, it just became sort of the idea that I couldn't, the most impactive aspect of the PTSD that I ended up having later. How did that manifest? So knowing that the boys were getting more victimized, how did that affect you down the road? I think just, I was just horrified, you know, just horrified that it didn't even occur to me for one thing. It didn't occur to me because, and it was this sort of weird, twisted, almost like heterosexual privilege. Like it's only girls, you know, it's like the me, you know, girls have the me too movement. Um, but we're not talking as much about this, although it is, it, that's not true as much anymore. There's a great documentary called what haunts us. And it's about this very same thing. And I saw that documentary. I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm not toiling alone in the dark mm -hmm. trying to have this conversation that, Hey, we need to protect the kids. And it's not just the girls that are subject to this stuff. It's also the boys. Yeah. I think, I think general generalizing you know when when people think about sexual abuse predators we usually think of men as predators towards girls mm -hmm. i think to your point i think initially no one would think really about these young boys so were your brothers exposed to this yes mm -hmm. i believe so i mean i can only surmise they were young when we made our escape they were five and seven I think that the youngest may have um, not had such terrible experiences but you can just see it. it's like I'm the one I'm the one standing from the family it's like addiction snuffed out my family members you know not instantly like you might lose somebody from a fatal overdose but through mental illness and addiction and it was just like they just sort of faded out into what appears at this time to be an irretrievable state of mental illness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and what have you done with these experiences because one of the things i wanted to address is share a little bit about these experiences and how it influenced with your current book surface so surface, so, so congratulations, surf, by the way, on your thank new book. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Yes, that was uh, that was a big accomplishment. I I didn't I never ever wanted to I never wanted to talk about my experiences, let alone write a book about it. However, throughout the course of my recovery, a number of people said, "You really you really should write a book. You really should write a book. You really should." And I said, "You know, fuck you, universe. I'll write a book." <laughs> okay, There's that universe yeah. again. Yeah, you know, it's like all right, you know, you're saying okay, I can hear you, and I sort of learned to through the process of recovery, listen to messages, you know, if more than one person says the same thing to me, like maybe there's something to it, you know, or even if one person. So I just, I heard that message and the title surface, um, is an allusion to aces surf surface. Um, and I wanted to participate in this conversation that I didn't feel like was happening about, how boys are victimized and how aces influences addiction. I wanted to address those two things specifically. And I wanted to illustrate the experience of that through a narrative. Through your lens, are these, is this fiction or nonfiction? It's a memoir. It's nonfiction. So, and I see in the beginning of the book, it's like, you know, this uh, drug-addled and time-lapsed human memory being what it is, you know, this is what I perceived. Who knows what the truth was, you know, because I mean? it's like, you know, everybody, everybody perceives things differently. My brothers may remember things differently than I do, you know, so I just wanted to illustrate. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is that books like that, Recovery Memoir, helped me so much. I mean, it was like my lifeline when I couldn't talk to people and they, you know, people in recovery circles, here's phone numbers, use phone numbers. I could go to the library and check out a book and I learned how to pick up the phone. But before I could pick up the phone and talk to people about how do you get through this, books were my resource. And so I wanted to pay that forward once I kind of got the message, you know, write a book. It's like, okay, well, if, if I can pay forward what has happened in my own life of being able to grab that lifeline, if I can do that for someone else, then I'm willing to show up and do the work. And it's, it's really heartening to see um, that I'm not alone in that conversation. Right. How, what was it like for you to write it in that, the writing process of itself? It was so empowering. So I, you know, I know, I had some friends, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book. And nobody was actually writing a book. We were, <laughs> we were just talking about it. And I said, no, I don't want too many years to go by. It took me nine years to write it. It's like, I don't want too many years to go by. Like, I want to write this book. And so I thought, I reached out to some friends. Hey, let's not talk about it. Let's do it, you know? And um, so we got together for a writing, writing group every week. And some of the scenes... Were, it was almost like I was in, inadvertently giving myself trauma therapy, right? So what I was trying to do was write these, sure. yeah. write these scenes that, you know, one of, one of them that was really hard was, um, you know, there was child pornography going on in the neighborhood. And, you know, this guy gets me cornered and he shows me a picture. And I realized what's going on. And it was, it was really hard to write it. But then I thought when it was time to go present this piece to my writing group, I was like, okay, I got to like perform this. And so just the act, and I, I learned a technique of writing 
Whereas like I could get by myself and I could read my scene out loud to myself and then all that stuff that it would bring up. And it's like, okay. And so it became art to perform. And then I was able to be really present with that idea and pay attention to how it was affecting my little audience of my writing group. You know, are they gasping at the right place? Are people crying? Are people horrified? You know, do people hate me when I'm driving drunk? You know, those are all the emotional response that I think makes for engaging writing. And I can't carry a social social message. I can't carry a social message in my writing if I haven't got my audience with me, you know? So it was really beautiful um, to have friends who were willing to listen and, you know, give me feedback despite the really heavy deep dark nature of the content people oh, were able to yeah. stick with me people were able to stick with me and, and provide feedback and it was incredibly valuable so with this process how do you think it's influenced your own recovery I think it's just given me liberation mm. you know I feel free I don't feel I feel like if somebody needs to you know I meet people not often but I do meet people who are you know, recovering from really big traumas. And I think it's just really empowered me to be able to sit with them, you know, just, just be there with them, you know, like people were able to be there with me, guide them, you know, guide them to the right um, mental health practitioners, you know, if that's what they need, you know, or they're willing to do. Uh, so it's just been very empowering. It sounds like it. So the audience, I mean, there's clear messages from this book. What would you, how would you articulate what exactly would you like that message to be for your reader of Surface? Well, recovery is possible. You know, as long as you're not gone, recovery is possible, I think is one of, one of the main messages. The other one was I just really wanted to illustrate what it's like to have a polysubstance use disorder and PTSD. You know, I just wanted people to see and feel what that would feel like. And I wanted to convey that, you know, oftentimes addiction doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's trauma related. Mm -hmm. Research bears that out. And um, you can see other examples in literature as well. Um, and then also that thing about, about not being complicit as a community when there are predators in the neighborhood. Everybody knew in the neighborhood about this predator, you know, and there were more than one. And it was, you know, um, we need to be able to, I think, as, as a society in our communities, not just pretend like it's not that bad because we don't know how bad it is, right? So if kids are coming forward and there's saying you know like I did like hey this is going on this isn't okay and then you have a child you know go to you know like you know an investigation happens but the kid says it's everything's fine everything's fine no there's nothing going on but they're saying that because you know they're being threatened I'll kill your brothers you know or you know this is how it operates and so just if we're the more we're in this conversation the more we're able to protect the vulnerable people, the children, the more we're able to, and, and I have a lot of compassion actually for people. One of the great revelations that I had about this whole thing was 
you know, that people who are victimizing other people, oftentimes it's a form of addiction. And my addiction shows up like it shows up. And their addiction shows up like it shows up. And I think somewhere in the root of that, there's so much crossover that I have to have compassion, right? I just do. That's just my own personal journey. That we need to have compassion for people when they're not well, whatever that looks like. Essentially, like, let's have this conversation to reduce stigma. Yes. Right. So important. So important. Because like you were saying, as children experiencing these, these, these kinds of trauma secrets are huge. Like in the beginning when you were talking about it, your mom was saying, don't say anything. Right. But that seems to be rooted throughout life is to keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. Keep it in the shadows. Don't say anything. So with ACEs, I think as a message similar to what you're saying, Cora, is know that it exists and understand what those signs are like for these kids, for someone who is an outgoing kid, all of a sudden silenced or their behavior shifts or, you know, all of these things because children don't have words to describe what's going on. So the responsibility is on who do you think? I think it's on all of us. I think it's on educators and parents and community members, all of us really, you know, I think it gets to be too much for some parents, you know, and so for all of us to just be aware of all those things you just mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. is their acting out or their behaviors, you know, and I think when we're all paying attention to that and able to have loving, supportive, compassionate conversations around those things, and, you know, connect people with resources, then we have a better chance of better outcomes. Absolutely. A recent study that I saw actually stated that if people actually did interventions, talk about it, they could save the United States over $56 billion in services and interventions and hospitalizations and drug treatment and psychiatric interventions. Um, the thing is, these things are preventable, would you say? They're plentiful. They're preventable. It preventable. Have, it doesn't I think have so. To get to a point where you had to experience all this stuff and suffer as a, an adult, because no one was seeing it. Well, they're very preventable. You know, I think in the case of my own life story, you know, it could have been intervened with my mother. You know, something happened to her at some point, and there was a dramatic shift. Whether it was a mental health diagnosis sure. that was or was not triggered by trauma. There was a clear point in her life where things went south and she was about 14 when that happened. And instead of being able to have that conversation, that, that was a whole different era, right? It was like, oh, we, you know, we're not going to talk about it. We'll just, you know, we'll just, if we pay this money, it will be okay. If we buy her a car, it will be okay. If we buy her a house, it will be okay. And so it was just always kind of trying to patch the problem with just sort of placating it with, you know, covering expenses that she couldn't cover herself because she became unable to function mm -hmm. instead of being able to get real help from real doctors. And I think that was one thing that was really helpful, you know, in my own journey was, you know, I didn't just do um 
you know, recovery rooms that were peer led, like I also had some real, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and some supports that were very professional and high level mm-hmm. that helped me. And to get to the point of asking for help, it sounded like a desperate place, like you didn't question getting help. Were there times before where you wanted it that you just kept silent? I don't think I was ready. I think I wanted it inside, but I was never ready to admit that vulnerability because being vulnerable was a dangerous thing always. And so to come to that place of not having any choice but to be vulnerable and ask for help, you know, it was just a long road. Absolutely. So people listening, a lot of people in in our work, there's a strong correlation, as you mentioned earlier, between trauma and addiction. Like addiction just doesn't happen in thin air. There's a cause of some sort, whether it's a result of suffering of some sort, genetics. It can be a multitude of things, you know. So I just am wondering how would you support someone who is afraid to speak out because they have such shame they think it's dirty um they don't know have the language they don't want to get in trouble um how would you help them speak up and ask for help i think one of the most important ways to do it is by example recovering out loud i've been to yeah i've been to some different um workshops over the years and I remember I was watching this panel of presenters one time and it was like a judge and a lawyer and a probation officer and you know these people are on this panel and they're all in recovery and it's like gosh if we could only know right if this person who's got a bounty out for them (laughs) trying to rein them back in to do their time or whatever you know if they only knew that their parole officer was in recovery, what kind of a difference might that make, right? So you were mentioning about stigma. I think the more we're able to share our stories and really, I don't know very many people at all whose family on some level or another has not been affected by addiction. I mean, it's an an absolute epidemic. Mm -hmm. And to normalize addiction as opposed to stigmatize and polarize it. Um, You know, you think of someone who's addicted, there's these negative things. Even when you were speaking, you're like, I don't want to be like them, Mm -hmm. right? So there's Mm -hmm. always, and talking to many people who are in recovery, um, who are polysubstance, you know, free or or, or, um, alcohol free, you know, part of changing that stigma is changing your language and Mm, seeing who you are, right? You used to, you are not this bad person, right? You wanted this moral compass and a lot of things happened to get there, but there was that compass you had already. You were a good person. You are a good person who happens to have substance use disorder or experience that. And I think that's an important message and distinction is you're not your addiction. Yes, absolutely. Right. And so your book, Surface, really takes that to a a very personal and deep level. I read 
So I got the privilege to take a bird's eye view and take a little deep dive in, in your book. And one of the chapters was called FBI, I believe, something like that. I mean, so Cora, you write beautifully and with such humor, even when there's such tragedy in there. Some of it's very ironic, um, you know, but to your point, it really, I think, is a relatable book because like we've been talking about is, you know, people with trauma, there's a high correlation with addiction of some sort, a high correlation with some mental health challenge of some sort. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful read, by the way, and I look forward Thank to you. reading it more in depth. Um, and you made it on the other side, for sure. And is there any other things that you would like to share about ACEs or kind of your own recovery um, and about this book on the surface? I think just, you know, get up and tell your story and whatever that looks like, you don't have to be some, I, some like low bottom, go to jail, you know, get strung out on heroin and benzos. That doesn't have to get that far. You can stop whenever you're willing to admit, whenever you're willing to look at yourself enough to admit like, Hey, is this the person I want to want to be? Because I've, I've run across some people who really, you know, it's like, oh, my drinking's a little bit out of control or I'm having more than two, you know? And to me, that's so remarkable. So I think just being able to hear that this is a problem that we're all going to come across in one way, shape or form and to be able to have an honest self-appraisal of where, you know, where is this showing up for me? You know, collectively, you know, um, you know, even sugar, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I loved your podcast episode. <laughs> about that, right away. that was so good. Thank you. That was so good. Um, so, you know, just these things and whether it's shopping or, you know, too much screen time, you know, it's like to know that these things can and are, can be and are addictive and, you know, we can be vulnerable to that and we can make a choice. We can make a different choice. What is next for you? Another book? I'm hoping to do another book. Um, I have two books in the works. One, wow. so what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do, there's this writer who I admire. She was a true crime writer, and she wrote this book that was just amazing. And it was her story. And then she devoted the rest of her writing time to helping other people bring their stories in. And it had, you know, social social reasoning behind it to kind of try to help prevent crime. And so I kind of wanted to model my own writing after that, you know, tell my story and then invite other people or just see what shows up. Sure. And what, what has shown up is um, my friend has generously shared with me the story of his mother who um, was a World War II refugee from Burma. And so uh, working on a book that is about that. And I'd also like to do a kind of a daily meditation book to go along with surface. Oh, I think that would be amazing. Really amazing. So everyone, um, you can refer to my podcast description to find more information uh, about Quora, but your book is everywhere. You can get it on Amazon, all of that kind of stuff. Um, again, really appreciate you 
taking the time to be here. It's great to talk to you, Cora. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. May Lee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting. You can find my podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.